Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. This is Vincent Shen. Thanks to all the fools out there tuning in. It is Wednesday, January 25th, and we are pre-recording this episode to take advantage of the fact that Fool.com contributor Seth McNew is here in D.C. this week and in studio with me right now. Seth, welcome back to Industry Focus. How has 2017 been treating you so far? Thanks a lot, Vince. Uh, It's been good. I just got back from a long trip in Asia, so I'm excited to be back in the States. Yes, and we will hear a little bit about that. Uh, Where did you go? Uh, I went a few places. So I started in Tokyo uh, and then on to uh, Macau. Okay, excellent. And that uh, Macau leg of your trip is what we will be uh, (laughs) talking about a little bit. But uh, even Tokyo, too, will play into it towards the end of the show. Because today we are talking about hospitality, uh, gaming, and a few developments uh, with. A notable, uh, you know, former startup upstart, and then also a kind of outlook for gaming and uh, how some of the new resorts in Macau have been uh, performing and what you've seen firsthand from your trip. So, for our first topic, we'd like to revisit Airbnb a little bit. I actually was surprised to find that we haven't really covered uh, the company substantially, at least since uh, 2015, summer of 2015. Uh, of course, they are still, uh, they have not gone through their IPO yet, but it's building, some of the rumors are building up that 2017 is going to be the year after 2016 amounted to a rather slow year for Silicon Valley IPOs. Um, so, Airbnb, though, just in case for anyone who hasn't used the service, quick overview what it is, uh, you know, what they do. Yeah, sure. So Airbnb, I mean, at its core, it's just uh, it's it's booking rooms, but through through private listers. Mm-hmm. So as opposed to a hotel that you know either licenses or owns their properties, and you're booking straight through them. Airbnb is just the social platform that allows people with open rooms to list those rooms, and then renters can go on the app and uh, book a room. Yeah, and uh, the way I've I've heard it described, which I really like, is you're essentially crowdsourcing. Uh, various places to stay in these various cities all over the world. Right, uh, their reach is in- incredible now. I think they're in uh, like 190 countries. <laughs> um, but uh, the Airbnb started in 2008. Uh, they have millions and millions of guests across many, many, many listings. Um, and I think the theme that we're seeing that we'll talk of focus today for the company is that uh, I think. For a long time now, in the overall vacation travel booking industry, uh, companies like Priceline, Expedia have seen the value in bundling, essentially, and by offering you uh, or giving you the option to book through them not only your airfare, but where you're going to stay, maybe your car rental. Uh, by bundling that, giving you a discount, it's still more lucrative for the company. And it seems like, with some recent news uh, in November and December, that Airbnb's very much embracing this model. Uh, with the launch of what they're calling trips, right? Right. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing to, to remember that Airbnb is less than a decade old. You know, mm-hmm. when we started in 2008, and here we saw it was disrupting the hotel industry and uh, maybe now online travel agencies, maybe something else. But the, the launch of trips really shows how they're able to use their platform to, to, to really diversify. Yep. So, uh, just to in case you haven't seen the release, trips, uh, I the way they describe it, kind of break it down into three components, which is their experiences, their places and their homes. Uh, so the experiences aspect of it—it's very interesting. Um, I believe they started testing for this uh, as early as June of last year, but I think the more official release went out in November. Mm-hmm. Um, as of early December, uh, the, the most recent number I could find, Airbnb is offering 500 experiences available in about 12 cities around the world, and I'm pretty sure that is expanding quickly to at least another 30 or 40 cities if it hasn't already. And just to 
an example, and I think it's really interesting, of what this, these experiences might be. Uh, one example is, you know, you get to surf and explore the outdoors with a local in Los Angeles. The price is for three days of this immersed experience is $349 per person. Another example, uh, uh, in Tokyo, where you just came from, you learn the art of the samurai. This is another one that they kind of highlight on uh, the Airbnb site. Two days for $437. And you can even book with hosts who have partnered with nonprofit organizations. And the company cites that 100% of the guest payment goes to the organization itself, which I thought was interesting. Um, but reading through the frequently asked questions for people who would like to host an experience, uh, they're obviously, uh, they've obviously implemented some pretty strict standards standards, making the experience unique, value-added, having that local touch and flavor that you might not be able to get as a tourist traveling there just for a week or two. And the average price for... So, so these experiences can break down into two categories from what I find. Something that's uh, you know, just a couple hours, that's what, and then something that's more of a multi-day immersion. Um, and I was surprised they actually mentioned these numbers. The average price for bookings uh, for the shorter experiences is just $100. Whereas the average for the multi-day immersions is about $270. And the way the company makes money here is they collect a 20% booking service fee on the experiences from the hosts, not the guests. Right. Which is interesting because uh, for their more traditional business model, you know, they have that 3% listing fee, I believe it is, and they charge usually 6 to 12% of the, st- the cost of the stay to the guests. Um, so, that's the experiences part of it. And this is just just by chance. I have, sure. I did one of these in, in Tokyo. I did an experience, so I took a oh perfect. Here we I, go. <laughs> I took a bike ride around Tokyo, and so it, was, it happened to be an American who's been living in Tokyo. Sure. And uh, it was about three hours long. He took us uh, on a bike all around these alleyways in Tokyo. We got to see the city. Uh, it was only about twenty two dollars. It was great. I mean, we we got to message with him on the app right beforehand. All the payments were taken through Airbnb. And how long uh, did he just stay with you for? Like an afternoon, about. Uh, yeah, I think it started kind of in the, the mid-afternoon. We took a bike ride around Sunset, and then we all had dinner together. It was it was a full. I mean, it was definitely a full experience and well worth the twenty-two dollars for sure. Awesome. That that sounds really cool. And this again is kind of part of Airbnb's efforts to to start branching out beyond just the where you put your head each night and to bring in. Uh, not just the experiences like what you described, they also have something, the second part of this TRIPS platform, which is uh, what they describe as their places. Uh, this has several options itself. Uh, the first one that I could find was with these guidebooks. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you uh, saw any of these during your travels, but they call them insider guidebooks. Basically, uh, the press release describes them as uh, hidden gems identified by cultural experts and neighborhood insiders. There's a hundred of these guidebooks available at launch in six cities. Uh, they're also uh, pushing meetups, I think encouraging local businesses to organize meetups among locals and also travelers in the same city. And then they have these audio walks uh, where they partnered with Detour. So at launch, it's only available in Los Angeles, but that's expected to expand to San Francisco, Paris, London, Tokyo, and Seoul this spring. Uh, and it's basically uh, supposed to be unique, you know, very much value added uh, audio walks. So those are the three components, uh, or those are the two components. And of course, the third component of the trips is what they describe as homes, which is their tradition traditional business. Uh, you know, I found the exact numbers here. They have three million homes now available in fifty thousand cities spread across one hundred ninety one countries. Quite the footprint. Yeah, really. Um, and overall, what do you think about? I think the question that a lot of people have in their mind around Airbnb uh, with 
this news and in general, you know, the company uh, having at this point a thirty billion dollar valuation. Uh, when's the IPO going to happen? Uh, I know a lot of this is going to be coming from rumors and just the momentum of other deals. But what do you think? I mean, yeah, exactly. It's really all speculation at this point. The mm-hmm. company hasn't announced uh, any specific plans, other than saying that they are working to, you know, shore up their financial position so that they're ready for an IPO. Uh, but pretty much, the CEO says it's not in their near-term plans. Now, what near-term means, you know, none of us know. Does that mean late 2017? We're not really sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the really <clears throat> interesting part is that the uh, the valuation is is there. I mean, their most recent round, which was in part by an arm of Google uh, or of Alphabet rather, lists them as you know valuing at 30 billion. So. Second largest, right behind Marriott. Yep. So the company at this point has raised specifically over three billion dollars in its you know eight nine years of existence, uh, and with that thirty billion dollar valuation, uh, the for the numbers that I could find, you know, it's really hard obviously because <laughs> they haven't filed an S one or anything right. like that. Uh, but the twenty fifteen revenue number that I could find was nine hundred million dollars. Uh, estimates of twenty sixteen revenue at one point seven billion, which is ninety percent. <laughs> Year-over-year top-line growth, pretty incredible. Um, definitely seems like they're managing to maintain that uh, momentum uh, behind new listings being added, mm-hmm. guests uh, buying into the service, uh, and on the but the the core issue uh, for a lot of these unicorns still is on the bottom line. Uh, not surprisingly, the company is still operating at a loss. The most recent number I could find was for 2015. The operating loss was estimated at 150 million dollars, and so. Uh, you know, you're absolutely right. Company management going to be biding their time, trying to figure out when. Uh, you know, with IPOs, it's so important to be. Uh, the process might take six months, mm-hmm. but you want uh, to know what the market is like for IPOs. One bad deal from a uh, big tech startup could spell bad news for a lot of deals that are expected to come after that. Uh, so, beyond Airbnb, though, uh, or beyond uh, the IPO, I think another issue is what some. Of the legal challenges and regulations, um, you mentioned to me before the show that you know when you just search news for Airbnb, you know most of the majority of the content is around some legal challenge or hearing in some city abroad or even within the states uh, like New York City. Uh, what are they facing right now? What's the big challenge? So I think yeah, you're right, it, and it, it, it's coming from from cities you know internationally as well. Europe, it, it's they're having huge issues with uh, some of the, the government regulations there. But I think the big challenge is, is how are you going to maintain that top line growth if your biggest markets, New York, San Francisco, if the governments there are are working to limit how much people can make using Airbnb, how what how long they can list properties for, those kinds of things. Um, so I think that you know they're doing the right things to to try to combat this. They're diversifying a little bit. They're working with regulators to make sure that that they can get the right tax information. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just they recently had last year had hired U.S. Attorney General, former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder, to kind of be on their board to to help them navigate some of these things. Mm-hmm. But I think they're doing the right things. It's certainly a risk, but um, you know we'll have to see how that shakes out. Yep. And so for anyone who's traveled uh, with Airbnb and you love the service, some of the I guess the qualms that local governments have had is the issue of you know these short term rentals potentially. Uh, limiting housing availability in already very high demand metropolitan cities, and then also uh, uh, driving up pricing for a lot of housing. And uh, I think the company has made efforts as a result of all these lawsuits and hearings to try and uh, crack down a little bit on uh, what are essentially amount to professional Airbnb landlords, people who have multiple listings. You know, the property instead of being somewhere they live and that they rent out on occasion, maybe uh, I think the limit in 
certain places, for example, is 90 days a year, no more than 90 days right. in the UK. But you know, some of these properties are available 40 weeks a year. So obviously, this is just that is their business to rent it out Airbnb on a regular basis. That's having issues on housing market in general in these cities. So it seems to be the issue people are trying to uh, trying to figure out. But uh, you know, take all that into account. Uh, I think. The question becomes also, uh, you know, thirty billion dollar company now. You mentioned second only behind Marriott. What has the rise of Airbnb done to the more traditional hospitality industry? How are some of these players facing it? Do you think it is all that different, for example, from Marriott's business model, which is very franchise and management based? Yeah. So I think, I think when we look at those three million listings, you know, that's obviously a lot more. Marriott has one point one million rooms around the world in its in its whole network. In its whole network sure. of rooms, but. From what I've read, management of these companies they just they don't seem too concerned right now. Their biggest business is is U.S. business really, or mm-hmm. business around the world. But it's kind of that business travel, and Airbnb really is looking for that that more leisure travel. Sure, you know you're not really going to have business conferences in, in people's private homes. So uh, until Airbnb can kind of figure out that part of it, I think I think these hotels are are pretty well insulated. But of course, you know it, it's still eating into some of their business, and and when you're in a, a very low growth. Sector that that hotels are in right now, uh, that's going to be a, an issue. But looking back in 2016, I mean, the market hasn't been too concerned. Clearly, uh, Marriott, Hilton, and Hyatt's stock prices all risen over 20% each throughout 2016. Oh wow! So they've done okay, even in this threat. Okay, so um, overall, I I definitely will be curious to follow the news, see when this company. Uh, Kind of starts maybe management commentary uh, narrows down the timing a little bit. Um, a more, I think, a company that everyone is watching to drive or to set the pace or set the tone for IPOs this year will be Snap. Uh, that seems to be the one that's uh, expected in near term. Uh, other big deals like Uber mm-hmm. and Airbnb will follow, and we'll have to watch see how the market uh, reception is to these earlier deals. Um, but moving on uh, now to your travels a little bit, uh, let's first. Go to Macau. So I've had you on here before as like my insider, uh, having experienced uh, live there, having lived there for a little bit, and experience again uh, now at the newest resorts that have opened uh, from Wynn and other major casino operators in that region. What did you see? Macau has grown so much since I lived there. It's really it was great to be back. I mean, the city looks completely different. There are tons of new resorts open, uh, but what what struck me is it just it didn't seem to have that many people. And it's having come from Vegas. I mean, the resorts look amazing, and the whole area in Macau has really grown up. But it's just it's not like like packed streets like you would see in Vegas. Mm-hmm. So um, that was a bit of concern. But the resorts themselves, uh, I went to each of the new resorts, and I'd say the two that really struck out were um, the new Wind Palace, which is just opulent and incredible. There's a gondola that takes you from the front side of the lake all the way up to your room. Wow. Uh, inside, it's just just like you'd expect from Wind. You know, it's immaculate. It's it's, it's beautiful in its design. Great shopping, great casinos. There's not really a lot of entertainment aspects of it outside of the shopping, the casinos, but that's you know kind of win style. Uh, moving on to Las Vegas Sands, though, this was my favorite. Is the Parisian sure? And it's kind of this this French inspired resort, uh, a 50% scale Eiffel Tower right outside, uh, and then you walk in. It's just there are mime shows, there are clowns walking around. The place is is the most interesting casino I've been in in any country yet. Did you notice at all? Uh, I think a big trend that people have talked about in Macau was the decline of what was previously the you know 
segment that really drove business there, which is the VIPs. Did you feel like as these resorts overall, the industry overall tries to target what they call you know the mass market gamblers a little bit more? Did you see that actually when you were at the resorts in terms of uh, the tables and you know the clientele there? Did you see uh, feel like you saw a lot more high roller VIPs, which you might expect at when you right. know known for its opulence, right? Versus some of the other resorts or anything like that. Yeah, I think I think that gets back to kind of how the how the companies even before Macau kind of taken its dive have pitch to that audience is when mm-hmm. is much more of an upscale kind of VIP sure. experience as it is in Las Vegas. Uh, and Las Vegas Sands has always been kind of more of that mass market. But even more so now, uh, you really see that divide where when you go to the, the Parisian, that's the Las Vegas Sands one, you really see that it's entertainment first and gambling second. Where the wind still feels the other way. Still still feels gambling first, entertainment second. Okay. And uh, you know, for the market overall, uh, how do you feel like it's finally at that point where people are Seeing that recovery, and you know, after a year, year, year and a half, two years almost of ongoing declines, month over month, uh, you know, seeing their overall uh, gaming revenue in that region fall by pretty significant amounts. Uh, how how are the numbers now for that region looking? Yeah, so it was actually a little longer. I think it was 26 months of year-over-year declines there you go. Uh, since 2014. But actually, January was the fifth month in a row of year-over-year increases mm-hmm. uh, at 8%. You know, nothing to shake a leg at. So it's uh, it's definitely starting to grow again. Um, full year for 2016 was still down 3% over 2015. But analysts are expecting that 2017 will return to growth for the first time in a while. So uh, I think that's looking pretty good. Uh, there's still for how much gambling revenue Macau still has, which is about three times as much as Las Vegas, it still just has a lot fewer visitors than Las Vegas has. So I think ramping up the number of visitors with things like governments having better policies toward visitation, more entertainment-focused things to the mass market, I think we're going to really see a change there in the next couple of years. Yep. And just to add some context, uh, if you haven't been following the situation in Macau, is, you know, uh, I feel like the overall uh, tourist traffic levels to that region uh, Took a dive overall once uh, the Chinese government kind of cracked down on some of the VIP gaming. Uh, this was around more uh, issues with like money laundering and uh, people are essentially you know the, the ultra wealthy in China taking their money out of the country and and getting it or using Macau to kind of cycle it through. Uh, the president and the rest of the government had a real crackdown policy on that, which really shifted things from. Uh, Macau resorts catering to VIPs to trying to reach a wider audience. Yeah, and it, it actually wasn't just the VIPs. It was even just just travel restrictions for all people from mainland China going into Macau for amount of time they could spend, how often they could return to Macau. Yeah, absolutely. And those regulations kind of eased up a little bit in 2016, which helped those numbers to grow a little mm-hmm. bit. But as we saw in December, uh, there was news that the Chinese government was going to restrict ATM withdrawals, which again sent the, the each of these stocks down. So we can see that it's still volatile there. I'm trying to understand what the you know the government policies will be, but as of right now, it still looks pretty positive. Sure. And the last one is uh, the last topic I wanted to touch on, and this is a huge opportunity, big news for the gaming industry. Was in December, the Japanese Parliament finally passed a law legalizing casinos. Uh, still, a lot of work to be done in, on the regulation side of ter- determining taxes, uh, social programs, things like that. But overall, it uh, appears that government leaders uh, will be. Welcoming some of the major casino operators, like the ones that we've talked about, Win, Las Vegas Sands, MGM, uh, and the thing is, there it seems like they're targeting not uh, smaller operations, but these large integrated resorts. Kind of looking to Singapore, for example, as a model. Um, but according to uh, one 
a piece of research I found from Daiwa Research. They estimate that just three casinos in Japan could generate as much as $10 billion in annual net profits in this market. Uh, what do you think? Is this the what's the, what is some of the timing? How are companies viewing this? Because uh, this seems like a huge, huge opportunity. Yeah, and we've been covering this for a while. As uh, about every Congress session, there they they really tried to pass this, and it yep. finally got passed. So people are really excited about this. It still has to go through some regulatory looks before uh, they're going to figure out licensing. Mm-hmm. But for the companies that win a license to be there, I mean, I really think this is kind of the next frontier for for growth for this industry. Yeah, interestingly enough, it I think. Casino, uh, the casino operators and a lot of uh, other tourists very excited. But some surveys that I found actually locally among the Japanese population show quite a bit of uh, actual hesitation about this move. I think it was like twelve percent really supported the idea. Um, but the the numbers behind this opportunity are undeniable. Uh, sure, and I think some of the, some of that hesitation is just people are, are afraid of having you know a casino here, and that's why the integrated resort model that worked in Singapore could really work so well. The Singapore government had invited these casinos, knowing that it's going to be a small casino, but lots of other entertainment options with with full resorts of restaurants and and theaters and those kinds of yeah. things. Yeah, the, the thing you know, obviously the political opposition uh, was worried about naturally about issues like gambling addiction, mm-hmm. uh, money laundering, uh, influence of organized crime. But those are things that they will be working through, uh, you know, as regulation, as a framework gets built out over the next few years. Keep in mind that, from what I could find, no one actually expects uh, these resorts, these new resorts that will be opening in the country, to to start operations until as at least 2022 or 2023. Mm-hmm. So quite a ways out. Uh, like you said, the licenses haven't even been figured out yet. How sure. many? Who's it go- who's it going to go to? But I'm sure. Uh, I'm not sure how much. Uh, the detail you have about it around this, but I have to imagine that the various major casino operators are already positioning themselves as much as they can oh, to yeah. make partnerships to get their foot in the door as soon as uh, the the floodgates essentially open. Well, and I'm I'm sure these these licenses licenses will be kind of parsed out with local investors as well. Mm-hmm. So there'll be some partnerships. Uh, but I think when you're trying to trying to figure out which companies are going to win licenses, you can just look at what's happened in Singapore. Las Vegas Sands is one of the ones that won there. Uh, and its resort there is beautiful, and that's kind of become the model of how these integrated resorts can really uh, drive business for a country. Yep. Uh, the last thing I will uh, touch on is the fact that Japan itself is no stranger to gambling. There's actually a pretty su- substantial market there already uh, in two forms that I could find. So uh, currently, horse, boat, and bicycle races already. Uh, Take legal bets, so that's already a pretty well-established industry for gaming in the country. And uh, from what I could find, the horse races alone managed to bring in about twenty-five billion dollars in wager in wagers in twenty fifteen. So quite significant. And then you combine that with the existing, and this is a really interesting uh, world. If you want to, for any fools listening, uh, you know, do a little bit more research. Just search pachinko parlors or the history <laughs> of them. It's very interesting. But the idea is the, these pachinko parlors essentially uh, like adult arcades, I guess, operate in a bit of a legal gray area, very ambiguous. But you know, you collect tokens, you can exchange that for a physical prize to avoid regulations, but then you can take that physical prize to another location and exchange that for cash. So it's like it's this gray area, the best way to describe it. But uh, in terms of the size of that market, Pachinko players spent almost two hundred billion dollars in twenty fifteen, which is actually down from I think its height in the nineties. But Clearly, uh, you know, I think with such a, a large economy and generally very wealthy citizens, I can totally understand why the casino operators are extremely excited about the market that Japan presents. Absolutely. 
So uh, otherwise, uh, I'm going to leave it off there. Any other takeaways that you think for uh, Airbnb or gaming industry, Macau, anything? Uh, and then we'll just wrap up. Uh, no, I just say for Airbnb, uh, for anybody who's interested in the space, I would really try to use the platform just to see how well it really does work. Okay, uh, and uh, now that you mentioned that, there's two other things I uh, forgot to touch on during our previous discussion, and this again goes back to the way that they have bundled, uh, they've been trying to bundle as many services as possible. But this is something that actually just came through this morning in terms of news, and uh, that is a potential deal that Airbnb might be closing soon uh, with uh, a social payment startup called Tilt. Um, basically, would effectively give Airbnb experience with payments, and the key thing is Tilt is focused on social events, uh, which allow its users to do things like split bills, uh, plan trips, pay as a group, and they also have their trip itinerary, which brings a guest's trip timeline all together into something simple and easy to use. So, I think with each of these moves, integrating everything more and more into the overall Airbnb service, it really does indicate to me, at least, that timing 2017 could very much be the year. But uh, thanks a lot, Seth. It was great having you on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me back. Uh, that wraps up our discussion for today. Uh, you can reach out to us and the rest of the Industry Focus crew via Twitter at MF Industry Focus. Uh, and you can also send us any questions via email to industryfocus at fool.com. And don't forget to check out www.fool.com slash podcast for our other excellent uh, po- uh, for our, uh, our other excellent shows. People in the program may own companies discussed in the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.